Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. This is the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we begin our new series this morning talking about the red letter texts in scripture, we're going to look for the next several weeks at, at texts where Jesus is the one speaking, the red letter passages. I want to make a statement right up front as we begin this series and make it as clear as possible that we believe that all scripture is inspired by God, okay? All scripture is inspired by God. All of it is applicable to all aspects of our lives. Scripture is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training up in righteousness. All Scripture is inspired by God. But there's something special about the red-letter texts, is there not? There's just something special about knowing that we are reading, we are hearing, we are speaking the words of Jesus Christ himself recorded for us in the New Testament. It's not that they take on more importance than the rest of Scripture, but they also are set apart. They're unique because they are the words of our Lord and Savior. You may wonder to yourself, when was the first red-letter Bible printed? You may not wonder that to yourself, but either way, I'm going to tell you the answer, okay? 1899 was the year that a man named Louis Klopsch when he was reading Jesus' words, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you, the thought came to him, what if we printed a Bible that had the words of Jesus in the color red like the blood of his new covenant? If these are his new covenant words to us, what if we printed those words that were, were generally accepted by others to be the words that Jesus actually said in red? And so... He, prevent, he printed, he brought about the first red-letter Bible. So here we are more than 100 years later, and I would imagine that many of you probably have a red-letter version of the Bible with you today as we read the text. Even if you're using a digital version, many of the digital versions show the words of Jesus in red letters, depending on what, which one you're reading. And so this idea took hold, and it has had great meaning for many people in their own personal Bible study. So for the next few weeks, we're going to look at some red-letter passages where Jesus himself is the one speaking. 
And this morning we're going to begin with Luke chapter 13. Actually, we're going to be in Luke 13 this week and next week, but this morning we're just going to begin with this first text that we read. And here with our our first red letter text in Luke 13, Jesus gives us two different scenarios, but I would argue that in the two scenarios, Jesus gives us one clear message. Now think about the two scenarios that Jesus deals with here in Luke 13 and how these kinds of scenarios still raise questions for us today. The first scenario he deals with is an act of violence, an act of mass violence. The second scenario he deals with is a natural disaster. And just like we have questions about those kinds of things when they happen today, there were questions about those things when they happened back in the first century. The first scenario was not only an act of violence, but as it's described to Jesus in verse 1, it was a cruel act of violence. There were some who were present at that time. And and what I see happening here in Luke 13, if you read back to Luke 11 and Luke 12, there were large crowds of people who had been following Jesus and listening to his teaching. And among those in the crowds, you had people like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, You also had common folk. You also had those who called themselves the disciples. They were actually following Jesus everywhere. But by the time we get to Luke 13, after walking through these previous chapters, the crowds have sort of dwindled at this point. There's a smaller group that's stuck around. And among those in the smaller group are those who ask Jesus about this situation. Jesus, tell us what we should think about that time when there there was a group of Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So what exactly happened? Well, we can actually read lots of stories that are recorded for us in history of the cruelty that Pilate demonstrated and displayed as he served as the Roman governor for the people in Israel. Pilate was often cruel. And often he would do cruel things to the Jews, to the people of Israel, in public for everyone to see so that he could assert his authority and make these statements and remind them that at all times they were to see themselves as underneath the boot of the Roman Empire. There's several stories recorded in the New Testament. There are others recorded in other sources. But the New Testament is the only one that refers to this story, where the blood of the Galileans was mixed with the blood of their sacrifices. And what probably happened was that there were a group of Galilean Jews who had gone to worship. And they were worshiping in public where others could see them. And for whatever reason that Pilate chose to, to show his authority over them, whether they had done something wrong or it was, it was just something that he saw to be beneficial for the Roman Empire and for his power, very publicly he shed their blood And then he mixed their blood with the blood of their sacrifices. In other words, this was not only an act of violence, but it was one that in the Jewish world defiled their bodies and it desecrated their worship. He wasn't just bringing violence on them physically, but he was making a very public statement against their religion and their faith and showing them in every possible way that he had what he saw as power over them. And so perhaps the reason why 
this smaller group that had been following Jesus asked about this specific incident is that they were struggling like we often struggle with the problem of evil. If, if we truly believe that God is all good, all loving, all knowing, all powerful, then why does he allow acts of violence to happen? Why does he allow evil to exist? Why does he allow in this circumstance for, for, for evil people to do evil things to people who bear his name? Maybe they were struggling with the, 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 the problem of evil. Now I'm actually going to tell you as we get into the next verse, I don't think that's why they asked the question. But it's fair that we do struggle with that. And we wrestle with questions when bad things and evil things happen. And I've shared this with you before, though this is not the point of the message today. Maybe, though hearing it again will be something that will be encouraging and helpful to you. There have been many times in my life where when I've wrestled with hard questions about God, or I've walked through hard circumstances personally, that I've settled on this one simple statement that has brought me comfort in the past, it brings me comfort today, and I believe it will bring me comfort in the future. And this is that simple statement. I believe that God is good, and I believe I can trust him. Even when things are hard, even though evil exists, even though suffering can be very present in our lives, I believe that God is good, and I believe that I can trust him. And I, I believe that those words will continue to bring me comfort, even when I personally wrestle with the problem of evil. We wrestle with the problem of evil. Maybe some in the crowd were, were thinking about that when they asked Jesus about this specific situation. But what I actually think was happening is what Jesus reveals to us in verse 2. That they weren't so much asking, Jesus, why did this bad thing happen to these people? But instead, he reveals the motives of their hearts and their thoughts in verse 2 when he asks them the question, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? More likely, I think they asked Jesus about this story because of what he had just said at the end of chapter 12. If you look at the end of Luke 12, Jesus had just told everyone in the crowd, if you have an enemy or if you have an adversary, you take the initiative to reconcile with that person. He said, if you're walking along the way with your adversary and you are on your way to stand before the magistrate who's going to settle your dispute, instead of going all the way to the magistrate, you stop right then and there and reconcile with your adversary along the way. And I hear those in the crowds asking this question about what happened to the Galileans to justify themselves. They're doing what we often do. They're, they're playing the what about game, right? But what, what about the Galileans, though, Jesus? You tell us to reconcile with our enemies. You tell us to take the initiative to make things right with our adversaries. But what about the Galileans? And what about what happened to them when Pilate mixed their blood with the blood of their sacrifices? Surely that is proof that they are worse sinners than the rest of us. But Jesus says no. He says the whataboutism game, it, it doesn't work. Instead of focusing all of your attention outward on them, on those people, Jesus says in verse 3, I tell you no, turn that focus inward unless you repent, you too 
all will perish. True repentance does not drive us always to look outward and point the finger at everyone else. All we have to do is scroll through social media just a little while, right? And we know who the problem is. The problem is always them. It's never us. The problem is always that person. It's never me. There are different rules that apply for thee than for me. That's the way we live. And people in Jesus' day thought the same way. In fact, I think the attitude that's at play here that Jesus is dealing with is similar to that which he deals with later in Luke chapter 18 when he tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Here's how Luke sets up that parable in Luke chapter 18. He says that Jesus told this parable to some who were confident of their own righteousness but looked down on everyone else. To those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. I'm not like those robbers, those evildoers, those adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But instead, he beat his breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. I think the same attitude is at play here in Luke 13 that we see in Luke 18. And if we're honest, we're all tempted to think like the Pharisee, to say thanks be to God that I'm not like that person. I'm not like those people. But Jesus rejects this way of thinking. When he talks to us about repentance, whereas our tendencies are to treat certain types of people as they are less loved by God than we are, Jesus rejects that way of thinking and reminds us that everyone who has sinned against God deserves judgment. And we are all sinners in need of a Savior. We all must repent or destruction is our end too. And it's not the death that that equals the judgment. It's what comes after that. It's where where we will, will end up after we die, whether or not we surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ. And it's also what we will experience in this life, whether we will be filled with the life that comes from the Spirit of God, or if we will just continue to be people who pursue death in all that we do. Jesus takes that idea of turning the focus outward and he reminds us that true repentance always brings us to look in the mirror and to do the hard work of introspection and self-examination and make sure that we are where we're supposed to be where we need to be in our relationship with God I remember when we were teenagers and we would hear some fiery messages about repentance. Maybe you've heard some fiery messages about repentance before. And we sort of turned it into a joke as teenagers. It's really not funny, 
but we would turn it into a joke. We would say things like, you better turn or you're going to burn, right? Turn or burn. Or we would say, fly or fry. Or you'd better repent before you die. It, it really rolls off the tongue well. Turn or burn, fly or fry, you'd better repent before you die. But that type of language always turns things outward. And it so often fails to do what I believe Jesus is doing with the group gathered around him to, to remember to turn that focus inward and to remember, as we've already said, that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. Whether we're Galileans, whether we're Judeans, Samaritans, Americans, or otherwise, we are all sinners in need of a Savior. And true repentance involves true introspection and here's how the bible teaches us to pray that kind of prayer search me O oh god search my heart O oh god see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way and to those who thought that 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 galileans were worse sinners than everyone else jesus said no unless you repent you too will perish and he shifts the discussion away from the first scenario the the cruel act of violence that Pilate had enacted to the second scenario which is a natural disaster but he not only shifts the topic away from violence to the natural disaster notice he also shifts the geographic location it may be easy to miss but they were asking about the Galileans. They were asking him about those other people. Now when Jesus talks about this idea of a natural disaster, that time when, when, when the Tower of Siloam fell and 18 people died, he brings it right to the heart of the center of the, the place where they live, to Jerusalem. If you've ever visited Israel before, you know that Siloam is not another town. It's right there in the heart of the old city where the pool of Siloam was, where there used to be a wall, and on that wall there was a, a tall tower, and at some point a, a terrible thing happened right there in the city. The tower fell, and 18 people were killed. Jesus says, what about that? How about that story? Do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem just because the tower fell on them? You know, even just the last couple of weeks, we've seen some terrible disasters and tragedies. And every time they happen, they cause us probably to ask some more of those hard questions. And we live in a day and age where we can really see those tragedies now, can't we? We see the images, we see the videos. And yet, even when it's displayed for us in the most graphic of images, when something happens like the earthquake that happened in, in Syria and Turkey a few weeks ago, we can't even grasp how huge that tragedy is, just how terrible it must be. When we see things like the deadly train wreck that happened in Greece last week, sometimes we say, God, we don't even know how to pray in these situations. Perhaps the people in Judea felt the same way about what had happened to their countrymen. And yet, I, again, I believe Jesus is not here just dealing with how we should wrestle or struggle with bad things that happen and things that are unpreventable when, when they happen to people. He's intentionally bringing this story right back home to Jerusalem just in case they thought that Galileans were worse sinners than they were. 
just in case like we're often tempted to do they thought that that god sees some sins of some people as worse than the sins of others maybe let's get really honest maybe some of the people in the crowd who were talking about this were actually taking satisfaction in the fact that something bad had happened to the Galileans, to their enemies, to their adversaries, the people who they thought were lesser than they were. And Jesus says, remember, bad things happen to you too. To remind us that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. And even today, even Christian people, public preachers, will use this kind of language and share these kinds of ideas that Jesus was dealing with almost 2,000 years ago. How many of you remember when a few years ago there was a tsunami in Indonesia and there were some who were saying publicly this is God's judgment on them because of, of, of the gods that they worship. There was a tsunami or there was a hurricane that hit Haiti years ago and people said this, this must be God's judgment on them because of their witchcraft. There was a hurricane that hit the city of New Orleans in the United States, Katrina, and people were saying this must be God's judgment on New Orleans for all the iniquity that happens there. I never, though, hear that language when a Baptist church is destroyed by a tornado in Oklahoma. And in New Orleans, do you realize that when Katrina hit, our seminary was destroyed or was really severely damaged. And yet most of the French Quarter was untouched. So I, I'm not sure how it works. Maybe that, maybe sometimes we are seeing God's judgment. I don't know always how to judge that, but I know what I believe Jesus is telling us here. When we see terrible things happen, rather than using it as an opportunity to cast dispersions on people we don't like, the opposite should be true. It should be a wake-up call and a reminder to us that true repentance always brings us back to look in the mirror and to do the hard work of self-examination introspection and to remember that though our tendency is always to turn things outward in judgment true repentance drives us to look inward and to remember we are all sinners in need of a savior unless you repent jesus responded to both of these scenarios you too will all perish and to drive this home Jesus does what he often does when he teaches in red letter texts. He told them a parable. And the parable that he told them in verses 6 through 9 was a parable about a fig tree growing in a vineyard. Now, we don't tend to think with the mind of Judean Jewish people, but when the Judean people heard this image, this illustration of a fig tree, almost always their minds would go back to exile. You remember we talked about that in our Old Testament reading. I hope you remember, it was just a few minutes ago, that cycle of the, the Hebrew people when they would sin against God and then they would experience some sort of exile and then they would repent and then they would come back and then it wouldn't be long before they sinned again and more exile came and ultimately they ended up in the worst form of exile when, when, when then both the northern and the southern kingdoms of Israel were captured by their enemies. Well, Jeremiah the prophet, he uses the illustration in multiple places of a fig tree. And he says, what's happening to Israel is you're becoming like a fig tree that's no longer bearing fruit and, and you're drying up and you're dying. And what's gonna happen is ultimately you're going to be uprooted 
and you're going to be taken and placed in a different place so when they hear this image of a fig tree that that thinking of exile and sin and that cycle comes to mind and it's as if jesus is saying here to the people in jerusalem the people of judea let's finally break that cycle and let's experience true repentance that bears the fruit of repentance so we can stop making the same mistakes over and over again as those who claim to be God's people. Notice that the, the, the vineyard with the fig tree in it, the, the owner went out to look for fruit on it but did not find any. And, and the owner of the vineyard is not interested in just having more fig trees. He expects the trees to bear fruit. He doesn't just want more trees in the vineyard. It's not about numbers. It's about the trees that actually bear fruit and produce what is needed for the good of the rest of the vineyard and those who would receive from it. So he said to the man who takes care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and I have not found any. So cut it down. Why should it keep just taking up space? Why? Should it use up the soil? But thankfully, graciously, the gardener, the caretaker of the vineyard, is more than just a gardener. He's an advocate. He's a paraclete. He's willing to stand in the gap on behalf of this one tree and say to the owner of the vineyard, not I want you to change your principles, not I want you to stop caring whether or not trees bear fruit but instead the advocate the gardener says to the owner of the vineyard will you give us just a little bit more time through your grace would you give just a little bit more patience and as an advocate for this tree i'm going to continue working on its behalf just for one more year so that maybe just maybe with a little bit more time this tree will will do that hard work and will produce the fruit that it's required to produce. The fruit, Jesus is saying, of repentance. What's the fruit of repentance? Well, it's things like humility, genuine confession, praying to God, surrendering ourselves to him, and then walking in obedience. Those things are the fruit of true repentance, the fruit that we as, as obedient, faithful followers of Jesus are to to bear to produce the fruit of righteousness that comes from repentance and all the advocate is saying is to the owner of the vineyard can we just have a little bit more time and I will continue my work on the tree's behalf you know who this is reminding us of here it's Jesus the work that he's already done for us and that he continues to do for us like digging around that tree and trying to remove those obstacles so that growth might happen and then nourishing that tree so that it might actually finally grow that the the seeds would take root they would put down roots they would grow and and then and then fruit would be produced it's also the work of the holy spirit the holy spirit's also called our advocate who who is leading us and guiding us and giving us what we need so that we might produce fruit even when the weeds and the thorns of life seek to choke us out and the gardener the caretaker of the vineyard says if i can just have a little bit more time it might not be too late for this tree to bear fruit 
We were talking about this passage with a group of teachers and leaders in our church a couple weeks ago. And one of those teachers is an actual school teacher here in Tulsa. Her name is Amber Hermes. She's a high school teacher. And she said, this sort of makes me think about the conversation I have with my students a lot. When they fail to turn in an assignment on time. And I say to them, I tell you what, I'll accept it late. But it's not going to be for full credit. If you'll bring your assignment to me by Thursday, anything is better than a zero, right? You can still turn it in. She said, as a teacher, I see that, that same kind of grace being offered here. It might not be all that it could be, but listen to me. It's not too late yet because today is still here and we are still today. It's not too late yet to start and to still see God who loves us who longs for us to bear the fruit of repentance and the fruit of his righteousness work in our lives so that some good may still come for his kingdom with whatever breath and life we have left in us and you know the truth of what God does for us in Jesus Christ is even better than what Miss Hermas does for her students because Jesus tells a parable later where he says even those who come in at the last minute they still get the same reward. They still receive eternal life. Now, there may be some different gradations of how we experience eternity together, but if we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, no matter when it happens, while we still have breath in our lungs and life in our bodies, we still receive the crown of righteousness. That's the promise that Jesus has made to us. And I love the way the advocate uses this language if only I could have one more year, then perhaps this tree will still bear fruit. And, and Lord, if it doesn't, if when, you're, when the time comes that the harvest is brought to fruition, then cut it down. As Jesus says, if you do not repent, then you too will face destruction. So as we close this morning, I want to share this quote with you because I think it, it summarizes so well what Jesus tells us in this text and in this red-letter parable. Just as any orchard owner will have a limit to how long unfruitful trees are allowed to lie, so our lives are limited by God. Unless we repent, we will perish without God. And lest we think we have forever to get around to repenting, we should remember the parable of the fig tree. Who was Jesus talking to when he taught these red-letter words? He wasn't talking to the people who were out in the Roman and the Greek temples. He wasn't talking to the people who were engaged in all of the, the pagan worship and sexual immorality. He was talking to people who called themselves God-fearing, who went to church, who went to the synagogue every single week, who knew the scripture and believed that they were God's people. And yet to all of them, he said, it's not about everyone else. Will you deny yourself? Will you take up your cross? Will you die to yourself and follow me? And the same call that Jesus gave in the first century is the call we have on our lives today. True repentance will always bring us back around to look in the mirror and to do the hard work of self-examination for the purpose of repentance.
today, while it is still called today, would you be willing to repent and give your heart fully to Jesus Christ? Because tomorrow may be too late. Would you pray with me? Before I lead us in a time of prayer, would you be willing to just in the quietness of this moment just allow the Lord to speak to your heart? Hopefully he's already been speaking to you today. And maybe here in just this moment you would, would just quiet yourself and just say, Lord, I'm listening. Whatever it is he wants to say to you, would you hear it? Would you surrender to it? And listen to the Lord for just a moment. Lord, I believe that every time we enter into your presence for prayer, for worship, for, for learning from you, for spending time with each other, Lord, every time we enter your presence, you meet us right where we are. And I pray that that would be true today. You know where each and every one of us are in our hearts, just like you know where we are geographically. You know what, what attitudes we're struggling with, what burdens we're carrying. And I pray this this morning, Lord, that as you meet us where we are, that you would speak to our hearts and show us the next step forward in obedience. Show those of us who, who have already given our hearts and lives to you what it looks like to, to live out the fruit of repentance and to walk in a way that is worthy of you, to, to follow you in the way everlasting that you lay out for us. And I also pray if there's anyone here who would say, I've only always lived for myself that today, Lord, they would surrender their hearts to you, that you would help them see that path ahead, the path of repentance, of turning away from their sin, of following you, of surrendering their life, and of bearing that fruit for, for the good of your kingdom, Lord, for the glory of your name. Help them to see that today, Lord. Point them to the cross and what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. We thank you for Jesus' words. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his perfect sacrifice. And Lord, we thank you that he has been raised to life so that we might be raised from death to life in you. We give you this time of response and ask that you would move in every heart today in Jesus' name. Amen.